And some of them are. <laughs> Our epistle lesson is from Acts, the 16th chapter, verses 16 through 34. And this is a text you heard about six weeks ago when we read it then in connection with the last Sunday of Eastertide, I was only beginning to think about this sermon series about belief. But I realized shortly thereafter that this was the perfect text to use for today's sermon. So hear God's Word as it comes to us from Acts. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had the spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. And while she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept on doing this for many days. And Paul was very much annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. And they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates had them stripped of their clothes and ordered them beaten with rods. And after they gave them a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Silas, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundation of the prison was shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains was unfastened. And when the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors open wide, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And that same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the word of the Lord. We've been talking for two weeks about the importance of belief. We asked the first week, do beliefs matter? And we tried to give some sort of a cogent answer to that, that it's a common misconception that beliefs don't matter. But of course, beliefs do because they influence the way we act. Last Sunday, we talked about the importance of strong and correct beliefs and the way it shapes our character. We talked about beliefs as an interpretation of the way we live life and a guide to conduct. This morning, I want us to talk for a few minutes 
about what we as Christians have to consider the most important belief of all. It is that which governs our relationship with human beings. It governs our relationship with all the environment around us, the society around us, if you will. But most of all, of course, it controls our relationship with God. And that's the belief that we would say as Christians saves us. But we want to be very careful how we, save, how we say that. Because it saves us in one sense from our own worst selves. And saves us for God. The Philippian jailer who is frightened out of his wits by the earthquake and the fear that he has failed in his duty is so scared he is willing to commit suicide. That's what would have been expected if he had let prisoners escape. Until, of course, Paul calls out to him. And then he asks this question, what must I do to be saved? Now, you don't think that's a strange question. It's because you know the language. Most of you have been steeped in the way Christian speak works. But this was a very, very strange question for a Roman jailer to ask. He's a citizen of Rome, knows nothing about who Jesus is or this nascent Christian faith. None of that he knows anything about. So this is a very odd question for him to ask. He is a free man. He's safe. His prisoners didn't escape. His Roman sense of honor has been salvaged. So what does it mean when he asks the question, how can I be saved? It's got to be different than the way we often think about it. Like the Roman jailer, there are many people in today's society who do not see the need for a Savior. Unless we're in the midst of an accident or some catastrophe or needing somebody to rush to our rescue and save our lives, we have no idea, some of us, what that really means. Many people live very comfortable, very satisfying lives. They don't break the laws of the land. They don't abuse or take advantage of other people. They're kind to old people and children. And they say, a Savior? What do I need with a Savior for? I'm living a pretty good life, thank you. And that's certainly the way the Philippian jailer should have been responding. And yet, he sees something in Paul and Silas that he would really like to possess for himself. Whereas he is so anxious and worried about his life and position that he's ready to commit suicide before he even checks to see if the prisoners have escaped, Paul and Silas, locked up in jail, having been beaten, illegally, by the way, because Paul's a Roman citizen. And if he had spoken up and said, I'm a Roman citizen, they couldn't have laid a hand on him. But he didn't do that. He let them beat him. But he stands in awe of his Roman superiors. Paul and Silas don't seem to care. Whereas the jailer is a free man. You get that? A free man, able to make decisions and choices. The truth is, 
Like so many people, he is in slavery to his own fears, to his own poor choices, to his own sinful nature, and that's not freedom. In the moment he sees Paul and Silas, he realizes that they have something his life is missing. They're the ones who are locked up, but they're the ones who are singing hymns to God. Whereas his life is routine and at least at some point meaningless, maybe even filled with boredom. I mean, how much fun is it to lock people up and stand guard over them all day? That's not like much fun to me. Here we have Paul and Silas who are the prisoner. And they are singing and praising God. One of the things I know about human beings, and I suspect you all know about human beings, is that deep down inside, every one of us search for meaning. Now, we may do it in different ways. Uh, there, there are lots of paths which people use to search for meaning. But what it means when we, I say we're searched for meaning is we look for a place where there is hope. There's the assurance that life is more than work and play, sleep and getting up, and all the things we do. There must be something more than this. And that really is what the jailer is starting to feel when he asks the question. What must I do to be saved? It's not a question that a person asks who wonders about a Savior. It's a question that he realizes maybe suddenly, maybe he's been thinking about it for a long time, that he needs something he doesn't have. And he sees in Paul and Silas that something. And he wants to know about it. I think more and more Christian leaders are coming to understand that our 21st century looks very much like the first century in the Roman Empire. Now, I don't mean in terms of technology, of course. Our technology so far surpasses theirs. But it really does in terms of society and belief patterns. Like ours, the first century was an age of skepticism. All the old religious beliefs were beginning to fall away. All this idea that there was this pantheon of great religions, greater or lesser gods to whom they would worship, they were still there. The temples were still there. But people, especially educated people, really didn't believe it anymore. They had become what we would classically call skeptics, agnostics. They didn't know. And that's very much the way our world is starting to look. Not many people really believed in God or the gods. They didn't see evidence of that. And I'm convinced that that's why people like Paul and Silas won such immediate respect and or loathing wherever they went. For people who knew that life needed to have more meaning than it was having, People were attracted. But you notice, the folks that got them in trouble had nothing to do with their proclamation of the gospel. It had to do with them interfering with somebody else's economics. That's really the way the world works so often. They were mad at them 
Why? Not because they cast out the demon, but because the woman was no longer of any value to the folks who owned her. That's what made them mad. It's about money. How often the way we look at life and faith boils down to economics. And that much surely hasn't changed. But there are people who are hungry for a message of truth, a message that brings freedom, freedom that's different from what we know now. And that's why Christianity always can have an impact upon individuals and societies because ultimately in every culture, in every society, there are always people who are looking to find truth. And truth's not that easy to find. So here's the Philippian jailer realizing that a miracle has happened with this earthquake and this releasing of prisoners who don't run away. And he asks the old question, what must I do to be saved? You can imagine his friends, if they were around, thought that was a pretty strange thing. Not many people would have understood it. See, I'm not sure many people understand it today. If we do, it's because we have been inoculated and immersed in it. Some folks say it sounds a little bit like religious fanatic. Some say, well, it's a little bit, su a little bit superfluous. And maybe it is until people know that they need to search for meaning that's deeper than what they have now. You see, salvation, at least in the way the New Testament talks about it, is about wholeness. It's just not about going to heaven when you die. It's about wholeness and rightness and righteousness and ultimate freedom and quality of life. Now, the other stuff in the future is all just an add-on. That's an addition. See, one way or another, everybody searches for that truth. They may say they don't, but they do. Most of us don't ask the question. We say, how do we find meaning in life? Or maybe they recognize that there is a deeply spiritual side to life and so they go looking for other things that meet that need. Um, in one of my church magazines this week, published by us Presbyterians, there was a whole article on the Dalai Lama. Does that sound strange? No. There are lots of folks who listen because he is a deeply compassionate spiritual fellow, even if he's not Christian. And there are a lot of people in the world who look at the world just that way. So what does it mean? How can I be saved? And Paul immediately says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, well, yeah, I knew that's where you were going to go. You've been this for, golly, I've been talking 15 minutes. So y'all knew I was going to get here, right? But the question is, do you understand what it means? See, I think for us, we think we say the name of Jesus, we come down to the front, we end up being baptized, and we think that's what it means. But I want to argue to you that it's deeper meaning than that. It's supposed to be life 
life-altering, life-shattering in some ways so that it can all be pulled back together. You notice the jailer acts entirely differently once he asks and has the answer to the question. He has these beaten men cleaned up. Nobody bothered to take care of their wounds until now. He brings them up and he feeds them. When we recognize the need for a Savior, we start acting differently. That's an important understanding. So what does it mean when Paul, when the jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it means that you have to not only believe with your mind, but you have to trust with your heart and live out life with this conviction that this Jesus of Nazareth really is God. And if you want to know who God is, as much of God as you're ever going to see is found in this personage of Jesus. That really is the core. We believe with our minds. Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Lots of questions remain, I'm sure. They do for all of us. But it means that the one who governs the universe is going to behave toward us in a particular way. What is that particular way? Well, most of the world has spent its religious life in fear and trembling of a God who's out to get them. I know Christians who live their lives thinking God is out to get them. God sits up in the heavens and waits to see if we make a mistake and then wham, we get whacked. Is that our vision of God? Does that sound like Jesus in the New Testament to you? Of course not. Jesus, we see in the New Testament, is the one who says, God is for me, not against me. God is the one who wants me to be better than I am, not because I have to do something to earn His love, He already does, but because it's better for me. Christianity says that life can be worthwhile now in the midst of all the troubles we've all known, in the midst of life's difficulties, life can still have meaning. Why? Because we follow this one who can save. So we believe in our minds, we act in our hearts. That's really what it, how it works. A fellow by the name of John Patton was a Scottish missionary in the South Sea Islands back in the 1850s and 60s. And his task was to translate the Bible. I told you ago, one of the things Christians have always worked on is translating the Scripture into as many languages as they can. At this point, there's over 1,200 languages that Christianity has been, or that the Bible has been translated into. But the problem he kept running into is that the dialect of these folks on this island did not have a word for faith. Now you tell me, how do you explain Christianity to a group of people who don't have a word for faith? So he was really struggling to figure out, how am I going to do this? How am I going to make this? 
And so months go by, and one day one of his uh, servants came into the room, threw himself into an overstuffed chair that the missionary had sitting there, and said, how good it is to lean my whole weight upon this chair. How good it is to be able to trust that this chair will hold me up. And he said, that's the word. That's the word. How good it is to be able to trust that God will uphold me. That's faith. That's what it really comes down to. Heaven... uh, Christianity is not just about going to heaven when you die. That is um, one of the great gifts in the end, and I'm grateful for it. But Christianity is about living your life in wholeness today, now. Martin Luther once said that the only faith that makes a Christian is that which casts itself upon Christ in life and in death. And we know that to be true. There was a group of Indians in Mexico. I would call them Native Americans, but I guess you'd have to call them Native Mexicans in order to make that make sense. And they have only one word for believe and obey. And their logic is, if you believe it, you're going to obey it. Why do you need two words? And I think we could learn an awful lot from that. What must I do to be saved? Well, it's more than just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It is adopting this practice of following Jesus every single day. The world is filled with doubts. And one of the things I know, when people are in the midst of their deepest doubts, if they begin to act as if they fully believe, sooner or later, they come to believe. But the reverse is true, too. If you're a believer now, and you begin to act in ways that are not compatible with your Christian faith, sooner or later, you slip away from that deep connection to Jesus. I see it. God forbid, sometimes I've seen it in myself. You don't want that. What must I do? Believe. Trust wholeheartedly that this Jesus Christ is for us today, every day, and forever. And then go out and live our lives in the middle of that trust. Harder than it sounds but maybe easier too. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.